Welcome to Voices from the Footnotes, a podcast series presented by the McGill University Library's Roar team. Each episode, we will explore some of the hidden histories at McGill, looking at places, people, and artifacts. The library collections are rich and interesting, but this series flows from the silences also present. It is our desire to gather stories and share them. It is our goal to highlight voices who have often been overlooked in histories and in archives. I am today's host, Sheetha Lodia. Before we begin today's episode, we acknowledge that McGill University is situated on the traditional territory of the Ganyagahaga, a place which has long served as a site of meeting and exchange amongst nations. We recognize and respect the Ganyagahaga as the traditional custodians of the lands and waters on which we meet today. Today's episode is part two of a series on Black history in Montreal and at McGill from the 1940s through to the 2020s. In our previous episode, we heard from Beryl Dickinson Dash, now Beryl Rapier, who was McGill's first Black carnival queen. We also introduced you to a pair of fathers and daughters, Professor Emeritus Glenn Piggott and Adrian Piggott, and Ron Williams and Brittany Williams. We haven't yet heard much from the daughters, since we've gone mostly chronologically. But in this episode, they will take center stage. We ended the last episode with Professor Piggott describing the university's way of dealing with a lack of diversity. We also heard Beryl Rapier, Ron Williams, and Professor Piggott touch on themes of community and safe spaces. For the older generations, they found community largely outside of McGill, through their parents, through churches, and through community activities. And that's where we will pick up today. I asked Professor Piggott about his experiences at McGill in the Arts Building when he was the Associate Dean the first Black Associate Dean, at a time when there was only a single Associate Dean position. The faculty of Dawson Hall has a certain, uh, uh, the building has a certain presence on campus. It's uh, it's attached to the arts building. It's, uh, it, you, and of course, when you're in there, you do feel uh, that you're, you're at the heart of the university. So I enjoy the four years I was there. I, I also, because of, uh, I made a lot of changes as, as during that period that helped me to, to actually even develop a sense of belonging in that community because I, I pushed a few changes that were embraced. And, tell us, tell me about those changes, please. Well, uh, right now, but this one, this change actually postdates my time as associate dean. But this uh, multi-track program in the Faculty of Arts, uh, three of us are responsible for that multi-track program. I developed it with uh, Bruce Trigger, who is uh, was in the faculty of who was in the Department of Anthropology. Uh, he's unfortunately now no longer with us. And Jim McGilvery, uh, who was in the philosophy department, the three of us actually designed this new curriculum for the Faculty of Arts. And I, I had always had the sense that in fact that our, our education was not, was too focused in arts on, too focused on specialization, too focused on training people to do specific things and too disciplinary oriented. I wanted to give the students a broader education. I thought that the arts degree should have some more dimension to it than was it was there at the time when we so we we decided to include the possibility of more breadth in the education and also try to rule out the possibility of too much depth that uh, because the undergraduate degree should be 
an education, should be a real liberal education. Um, so we tried and uh, it succeeded. We convinced the university to embrace this new model of liberal education. So I'm pretty proud of that particular legacy. And there, there are a couple of things that I did when I was associate dean um, as, was to try to develop a little more outreach to the students who were struggling a bit uh, because for various reasons to try to give them a way to continue their education even though they were having some difficulties. So the students were so what we try to develop is a way to help students to navigate uh, instead because sometimes students, once they're failing at a place like McGill, they think that's the end. But I try to develop some ways to help students who are, now some of the students, of course, were disadvantaged academically because they were disadvantaged socially. So you have to. So I, I made, I think I'm pretty proud of the effort. That policy became known as the Pigot Year. It means that students can take a pause in their studies and come back if they need to, for whatever reason. Glenn found purpose and place during his time in the arts building. However, for Ron, the one space on campus where he experienced joy and fun was in the chemistry building. Uh, strange enough, um, in the, weird, in the science building, because they used to have a ping pong table down there. Uh, so we used, to, we used to do a lot of hanging out down there with uh, some of my friends. And some of those people actually I still am friends with now to the point where like, uh, like last, not, not this past summer, but I guess uh, that would be 2019, we actually met up and, and played golf uh, in the U.S. Because one of them lives in the U.S. now and he's got, a, he's got a second home down there. So we actually, and the other one lives in Montreal, but we'd always kept tabs on each other a little bit. We always kind of kept in touch with him, you know. So, but all from McGill, another guy that, and it was like a foursome that we used to hang around with. And I would tell you that of the foursome, three of the four were still very much in touch with, and all, and they're all from the chemistry days. Um, two of them are, one's got his PhD in um, chemistry, the other two have their masters in uh, in chemistry as well. So, I guess it worked. <laughs> <laughs> And they're all gainfully employed, so. Both Ron and Professor Piggott paved the way for their children in many regards. In Adrian's case, as the daughter of a prominent professor, who was also the Associate Dean of Arts, she couldn't escape notice. There obviously were profs who recognized the name and knew who I was. Students less so, but professors, I would often get the question, are you Glenn's daughter? Because I look like him and it's an unusual surname. So obviously people know, make the connection. If they've seen him, they know I'm his. We look alike. But I mean, that, that I was more accustomed to because I mean, the, the, the world of sort of post-secondary education is fairly small. So I've been experiencing that from Sejep. You know, I'd walk into classrooms in Sejep and people would be asking the same question. You know, do you know Glenn Piggott? Yes, he's my father. Um, that would happen very, very frequently. So I was also, you know, a number of people on campus had watched me grow up. So they already knew who I was just from the mere fact that I had been there from before I was a student. Uh, there, there are people who were, you know, associate provost who babysat me as a kid who braided my hair. So <laughs> I was not a stranger to campus. <laughs> and with some time, the opposite happened. Did she now tell you that uh, I had become her, her dad? Oh, there's Adrian's dad. Yes. There's Adrian's dad. There so the tables have turned. <laughs> I knew it would. And, uh, I remember introducing her to Heather Monroe Bloom uh, when she was uh, in her final days. Adrian had just come to McGill and uh, I, I introduced her, but I told her that it won't be long before I'll be known as Adrian's dad and it came true. 
Adrian, in fact, comes from a long line of McGillians. Yeah, my mother did her master's in uh, what was then called library science, is now called information science. And she did work um, as well uh, in the library school for a number of years. Um, so yes, literally my entire family. <laughs> <laughs> no uh, one escapes. My, my niece is currently at McGill finishing her degree. She's in her final year. How comfortable are you speaking about difficulties Black students and staff experience on campus? You're on this com committee. You're the chair of this committee. Well, I mean, for myself, one of the reasons I, I'm, I've taken on this role is that I, I probably feel more comfortable than most. There's the cloak of legacy, first of all, that I'm sort of shielded by. Um, being my father's daughter is definitely uh, a coat of armor that I get to wear that many people don't. My father was an associate dean. He was chair of his department for many years. He's well-regarded and well-respected at the university. And that does offer me a measure of protection. My mother, um, was president of the Women's Alumni Association. She has a stellar reputation on campus and that's an added layer of protection. It also helps tremendously that my current director is immensely supportive of equity work and values the work that I do within his team and what I call my day job. And then because I do good work for him in that regard, he's extremely supportive of uh, giving me the room I need to do the equity work uh, that I also do for the university. So I feel a measure of safety that I think a lot of people don't feel. Um, and I also think there's an advantage in that it's not my paid work at the university. So I can't get fired for what I do on the equity front. I'm not hired to do that work. I do it as a service to community that I think is important, that I value. Um, I also have institutional knowledge that I think is uh, important to bring to these discussions. Um, while I often joke that I, I, you know, that I was raised on campus, it's also true. I've seen the evolution or lack thereof uh, over these 40, what, how old am I, 48. So, you know, I've recognized it for the most of my life um, because I, I would come to campus almost every day as a child. Um, so I witnessed uh, both the work that my parents tried to do because my father chaired the committee that I now chair. Um, he was also an harassment assessor, which I also was at one point. Um, I went to camp at McGill. I, I just, I've, I've lived in the institution and I think that's useful to bring into these discussions because I do have a fairly clear sense of, of what has happened what's been tried, how it's been received, um, the steps forward and the steps back that the university has taken. So um, I'm lucky that I have uh, also a breadth of sounding boards, if you will, because having had my entire family be McGillians and have a, they've had a variety of their own experiences. So um, my family still has traditional Sunday dinner. So on Sundays, everyone gathers around the table and that was an opportunity to actually bring issues to the table and have those discussions with my younger niece, who's, you know, what, 23 now, and my father, who's going to be 80 next year, and all of us at the table presenting sort of our perspective on the various issues. So not only do I have sort of the... the the, the protection of the mantle of legacy, which is an important thing at McGill, but I also have that diversity of perspectives available to me at any moment because my entire family is McGillian. With this coat of armor or mantle of legacy, campus was a different experience for Adrian than it was for Ron or Beryl or even for Professor Piggott. Well, obviously having sort of two not to use the overword used word, but intellectuals as parents. My first impressions as a child, as I came with the curiosity of a child, McGill was a fascinating place to me as a child. Um, and because again, my parents were who they were, I was allowed to roam. I explored a lot while I was there. I would 
you know, just disappear into the, the stacks in the university, or I would, you know, explore labs. I, I ran around campus like a kid. Um, it, it, it did strike me that we were unusual, but we had always been unusual as a family. We lived in spaces where we were unusual. So it didn't necessarily click in my head as a little kid that this was odd because being odd was normal. I went to private schools my whole life where, you know, I was one of, you know, less than less than a dozen kids who were uh, children of black families or um, I navigated spaces where my experience was always unusual. So I didn't necessarily understand why that was not okay and why that was a problem when I was very small. But I was allowed to ask questions, certainly about it. Like, where are the other kids? Where are the other profs who look like you? Where are the other people who look like us? Um, and my parents were always honest, but also careful because I think they understood that they shouldn't necessarily taint my perspective. Yeah, what would they say is what were their answers? Um, well, dad, dad's always been, a, my dad is sort of my, my militant, you know, progressive demonstrating dad because dad always fought for equity for everyone. Um, and so dad would talk about how, yes, it's true that we, there weren't a lot of us, but we're working to change that. Um, he also talked about the historical reasons why that was. So we understood things like segregation and we understood things like the legacy of slavery and why it was that people of color hadn't necessarily had even access to the, the required steps that would allow you to be in higher education. Um, I understood that my father's experience in particular was unusual. My mother came from a wealthier family. So her experience was, you know, in some, in some measure um, influenced by having those resources. My mother's father was wealthy. She had access to university more easily. She had access to all of those things a little more easily, but my father's family was poor and I mean, developing world poor. So it's not, it was definitely clear to me that his experience was already a, a very, um, a rare thing. Um, and you could see it on people's faces because people were often surprised that he was who he was and had accomplished what he'd accomplished. And he experienced that very firsthand racism you know, the porters of McGill questioning what he was doing in the spaces he occupied. And we talked about those things. Um, but at the same time, having always been the black child in the white spaces, that was sort of just what the world looked like. You always had to sort of explain why you were where you were because people didn't understand that it was fine that you were there. Um, and it's only as I got older that it really began to occur to me that this didn't make sense. The black people I knew were educated and smart and, and you know, capable. And it's only as, as I aged that I began to understand that there was more to it. There, there was a deeper reason why we weren't represented. Um, Dad also worked on some of the more challenging equity cases across the spectrum, not just for people of color, but I mean, dad fought for things like pay equity for uh, a few professors. Um, at the time at McGill, the, the argument was made that because families don't depend on women's salaries, it was acceptable to pay them less. So dad fought for that. He, he fought for things like um, stopping the clock for grad students who you became pregnant because there's just the you know, the facts of biology are women carry the babies. It's just the way it goes. If you have a uterus, that's how biology works. And it's not fair that they're penalized um, on, on the grad clock. So these are the kinds of things that he took up. But he also always was devoted to the fact that uh, people of color were essentially always doubly burdened. Whatever the burden was in addition to, it was always the burden of being racialized. Um, and while we weren't beaten over the head with it as children, we were always 
it was never denied when we, when we encountered it. It was always you know, made clear to us that yes, that thing you're feeling or the thing you're experiencing is real. Whereas Adrian grew up on campus, Brittany, Ron's daughter, grew up knowing about McGill, but with a slightly different impression of it. Um, so yeah, I grew up in uh, LaSalle, um, which is, I think, southwest uh, Montreal. I, I like to call it like a mini Montreal because like Montreal has its different pockets and um, quite a multicultural city, LaSalle has that as well. Um, and yeah, I loved it. I mean, you know, went to the only time I really, I mean, I, I ventured out of the city, obviously, but um, went to you know, elementary school um, and high school in LaSalle and then, you know, Verdun, which is right next to it. Um, and really enjoyed, um, really enjoyed living there. I, I always said, I was like, I'm going to buy a house here one day, but I don't know if I'll ever buy a house. So, um, so, you know, I don't know if that's in the plan, but, um, yeah, I grew up in, you know, a huge family. Um, we all lived at one point, my, like mother's side of the family all lived on the same street. Um, so like my grandmother, like when I was born, we lived above my grandmother, um, and then like moved. And I thought we were going somewhere far. We literally moved down the street. Our postal code changed by one number. Um, and then my aunt moved above us. And then, you know, when my, another aunt like got married, she moved two streets up, which was like, oh, um, you know, but yeah, like grew up uh, around family, connecting with a bunch of people, um, uh, like even our church was like in Verdun, which was right next to LaSalle. So I grew up in that kind of little pocket um, and had friends at like all four corners of the city. And do you find that, where did, where did all of your friends and family end up? Did they all, um, what was the reputation of McGill among your family? Mm -hmm. and, and where did some of the others end up? Yeah. Um, so yeah, my dad went to McGill. He did a degree in biochem. Um, I think he did a minor in something and he'll probably kill me for not remembering, but definitely biochem. Um, and so, yeah, McGill was always um, kind of on that, um, on my radar as a school that I knew. Um, and then kind of, you know, going through things, you know, at school, we had students, um, like student teachers from McGill's education faculty and stuff like that. So I always knew McGill to be like a reputable school that I don't know if I ever like you know dreamt I don't think if I, I was ever someone who like dreamt of going to x school I was I was more like looking past school to like what I was going to do um but I think maybe maybe at one point I felt like McGill was too fancy for me um I mean but here I, it's obviously not here I am now um but yeah did you find that, that you were a little bit of a mentor too, because you were a Montrealer and I imagine, I mean, I know that so many students come from outside of Montreal. So you, mm -hmm. you had the insider knowledge. Yeah. 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 I mean, like, yeah, I think a fair amount of people going or at McGill law are from Montreal. Um, but yeah, there are people from all over the place. I, I think I remember introducing myself in a couple of different spaces and saying like, if you need tips on Putin in this city, I'm your girl. Um, and that was like my go-to, um, you know, took many a, a non-Montrealer through Putin week um, in every year of, uh, of my degree. Um, but yeah, being connected to the city already was really cool to then like, you know, you know, get to show people like, hey, just because you can't walk there from, you know, Milton Park, uh, to like school or whatever doesn't mean there are not other spaces in the city that are worth discovering um, and so it was really it was really great to be able to to connect those two things and share my you know my love of my city with the people who I was you know sitting in class with every day. Both Brittany and Adrian talk about the rarity of black students in their programs and overall on campus. So um, I, I can't give you like exact numbers maybe I can look it up quickly but um, in terms of like gender um, splits, I think like on like the traditional gender lines, um, I believe that there are more uh, female identified um, people than there are male identified. 
Um, but of course, you know, we're, you know, we know and are learning more about like gender and things like that. So that is a much wider spectrum than, than we know. Um, and then, you know, racialized people um, make up I am just like spitballing, but I for sure I think less than less than 40%, probably less than 25%, but don't completely quote me on that. Um, and uh, I mean, it, it, I would say the diversity of the class comes most from like the diversity of experience um, and, you know, kind of where people come from and, and what their backgrounds are before entering law school. I mean, not every person who comes through McGill's doors as a student is going to end up being a lawyer in a big firm somewhere, but we want to make sure that every person is given an opportunity um, to be able to take, you know, three to four or five years um, to, to be able to, you know, like leave with a, a law degree and do something with that. And so I think it's our you know, our duty to ensure that we're never, we never stop trying to increase the diversity of, of those classes. Um, I mean, it was interesting for me because I didn't have any, you know, other than the high school average program, didn't have a lot of experiences or didn't have a lot of experience or knowledge about what law school was going to be like. And so coming in, I didn't know anyone. Um, and I mean, you know, like I said, I was treating it as a means to an end. So I didn't really intend on knowing anyone very well or, or, you know, kind of being involved in any particular way. But I think I remember the first day, like our like welcome day, which was like August 30th. And like, for context, I had gotten in off the wait list. And so I had gotten in like 12 days before this date. Um, and so, yeah, the first day I remember I got there kind of early um, and you were kind of like, they gave you a name tag and you were kind of like waiting for people to trickle in for like the day to start. And I remember sitting there being like, I'm looking for other black people at this time. Cause it was like, I feel like we can, there will be, you know, a relationship that can be formed on some basis there. So every person that walked in, I was like, mm, okay, mm, okay, mm, okay. Um, there wasn't, there wasn't many, um, but on that first day, I like met another black student and then like uh, they had connected with two other students. And so the four of us were kind of like a pack for the first couple of weeks. Um, and then the kind of like, um, like just declencher, the element declencher of me getting connected with like a ton of different spaces was clubs day, which I think was in our second week. And it's like the, you know, the atrium at the faculty, which is not a giant space. It's just like full of tables with people soliciting you to join their clubs. And I just like put my name down in a bunch of different spaces. And so at that point I was able to get connected with like upper years with whom I shared some things. So there was like, you know, the Black Law Student Association that I joined, the Christian Law Student Association that I joined. There must've been a couple, like there must've been a ton of other things or whatever. And it was through that, that I kind of started to find my people, started to find my place and realized that my place was like everywhere because there were so many things to be involved in. I was like, I, oh, well, I need to do them all. Um, and so, yeah, ended up like finding some of my closest friends um, in all of these different spaces. The difference for me was that I was in a field where there weren't many people of color um, and there weren't many, many women of color. I would get asked if I was lost. I would, have course, I would have course numbers repeated to me as though I must not have understood that that was where I was supposed to be. Um, you know, there was always this sort of surprise when I was like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm not confused. This is what I'm here to do. Um, but how many how many racialized students in your classes was it a handful was it like you know one hand counting or oh yeah one hand counting easily and then when you wanted to reduce it to women two? just you yeah okay yeah maybe one other i'm not even sure if one other me often <laughs> yeah um it it's the kind of thing where you You notice it and you try not to notice it, um, especially in those spaces, because there's such a desire to, to make you feel that you haven't earned your spot. So you, 
you see it, but you try to sort of set it aside. Yeah. And, you know, would your classmates, when you had group projects and whatever, would they take your opinions? Would they? Well, the, the, I think one of the, one of the advantages, it sounds terrible when you say it like that, was that I'm really smart. So most of the time it was, the bigger issue was people sort of stepping back and just letting me do the work. Well, you can do it. So group projects were more of me trying to coerce people into doing work because they were like, well, if we don't do it because she wants the grade, she'll do it, which is true. My nieces tell me that now, you know, my, my young yeah. niece tells me the same thing. She's really bright. She goes to the same thing of people just sort of knowing that if they coast, she wants a good grade, so she'll do the work. Oy. Even when I went back to do my, my certificate in translation years later, it was the same. Right. Uh, there were very few racialized people. There were a handful of us. Um, most of the racialized people in my class were arguably the brightest people in the classes. And we ended up not only called on the most in lectures, but also doing most of the work. Yeah. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Hmm. How did you, I mean, because your experience is so radically different from many black students who come to campus, you had already established, let's say safe spaces. You know, your, your dad's office could be a safe space. Your, your mom's office could be a safe space. Uh, did you have a sense that the campus was yours in a way that other students didn't? Absolutely, and that was something that I've always recognized, that my McGill experience will always be vastly different from the McGill experiences of the people who look like me. Um, it's not so much that I don't know or understand or even see the things that other people around me are experiencing, but it's just, it, it is impossible for me to experience them in the same way. I'm, I'm too recognizable, I'm too well known, I know the campus too well, and the campus knows me too well. Um, you know, when I, even when I was interviewed for my job, I walked into that interview and the people who were supposedly on the other side of the table hugged me. <laughs> <laughs> my experience is never going to mirror anyone else's. Right. You know, it's just not, not possible. So I always keep that in mind, but I genuinely believe that that privilege comes with huge responsibilities. My, my campus experience as a student, as staff, um, as an advocate, as a, you know, chairing the subcommittee, of, as an ally to everyone that I can be an ally to, I always hold that understanding that I have a position of privilege that most people who look like me don't have. There's also, I think, unfortunately, because our numbers are low, there's the problem of visibility. Yeah. We are highly visible because we are so few. Yeah. Um, and this is a problem that affects not only you know, those of us who are sort of vocal and active and outspoken on campus, but it affects the quiet, unassuming student as well. Um, we've had students who report that they'll miss a class for, you know, they'll miss one lecture for a reason, and then they'll, they'll go to see the prof at the next lecture to ask a question. And the prof will make a comment, like, if you didn't skip class all the time, you wouldn't have these issues. And they'll be just, you know, dumbstruck because they think I've only ever missed one lecture. But they're noticed when they miss that lecture yeah. because there are only two black people in that class. Whereas if a white student misses a lecture, well, there's 300 other white kids in that class. So the student, the, the prof is not going to notice. And they'll come, they'll come to us and say, I don't even know what to do with that. I, I mean, it seems pointless to argue that I don't skip class because there's no way to win that argument. Without like with, an with, attendance call or something. Exactly. Yeah. 
So it just sounds like I'm, I'm whining or yeah. complaining when I have no mechanism to, to, to demonstrate that I attend all my lectures. But it's that the numbers being so low creates that, 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 that impression that every time you speak, every time you don't speak, every time you do anything, someone's going to notice. Brittany shares a similar sentiment about responsibility, but she also describes the burden of being a quote-unquote representative member of your community. Yeah, Black, black um, women um, and like women across the board or whatever are, um, we hold a lot um, and we are expected to do a lot without it being, you know, explicitly said. Um, and, you know, whether it is like outright, you need to do this or like, and it, like no one, no one else is gonna do this. And so there is an expectation that someone's gonna have to pick up the slack. Um, I think that, yeah, there's a, there's a lot there. Um, and I like definitely don't take for granted the space that I'm in and the like, um, the places that I have been able to be. And I know that I'm only here because of other black um, cis and trans women who have like paved the way for all of the spaces I'm able to be in. But yeah, it, 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 is, it is a lot to like, you know, want to be human, want to be flawed, want to, you know, be able to just like experience a thing, but have any understanding that like, oh, people are watching, people are looking, you know? And unfortunately there are people who will write off communities or write off, you know, swaths of people because of something that I may do or not do. Um, it's really interesting being a black woman making decisions about admissions um, because, you know, I have, I have like seen and experienced difficulties in the law school um, context, um, uh, a lot of which came from, you know, peers of mine who, you know, whomever let, you know, whomever, um, you know, said, yeah, admit on their paper, like they were in my space, you know? And so it's not to say that I'm, you know, not like not gonna admit any white people or like non-black people, but like, it's a, it's a, it's interesting being in this space of like having it, be such a still a very clear memory of you know the like like race like you know racist experiences that I've had from people who whose you know um, uh, applications passed across or yeah passed across the same desk that I you know desk you know in quotations I work at now um, and so yeah it, it feels very important very burdensome very um, yeah, it's important to like honor the space that I'm in and also ensure that I'm, you know, creating a cohort that um, is diverse in all of the ways, um, you know, that is not only made up of one kind of person. Um, yeah, it's, it, it is, it's a lot. It's, and I, I know it's, I know it's important. Um, and so constantly, you know, I mean, giving myself grace to say that like, there's no way for me to know exactly how every person is going to fare or what they're gonna do in the classroom, you know, if I do let them in. Um, but yeah, being intentional about the fact that like, yeah, as you know, the admissions office is creating a cohort, is creating a group of people who are going to be working with each other and working with others in the like, you know, in the legal profession and beyond. Um, who will have, you know, McGill stamped on their CV or on their, um, on their diploma and, and just like, yeah, giving, giving honor and space to that and, and doing my best to, to make as good of a decision as is possible. When we step back, we can see that between Professor Piggott's time and Brittany's time at McGill, that's from the 1970s until now, there have been some positive changes, many of which were in fact implemented by Professor Piggott. I asked Adrian whether she has noted any positive changes herself, 
It's a difficult question because um, it's McGill doesn't really make progress. I know it sounds terrible to say, but it doesn't. Um, so as an example, when I was much younger, there were more black professors. There are fewer black professors now. They're trying to change that obviously with the new hires. Um, but yeah, they, I mean, those <laughs> that you saw more black folks in actual tenure stream positions when, when I was a kid than you do now. Um, yeah, some of them went on to, you know, potentially greener pastures. Um, some of them retired. McGill is not an easy space. It's it not. is systemically racist and people get tired of that, yeah. understandably. Yeah. It's a difficult place to thrive. I mean, a lot of people do. There are days when I'm tired of it. Yeah. So I, I understand that completely. Um, but I, what I can say, for example, is um, I think one of the huge advantages I see are positions like the equity positions that have been created. And certain people who've been hired who are holding their ground. That's really been one of the huge improvements I've seen. When I think of a person like Shanice, yeah. who is undaunted and who refuses to be silenced or put in a corner, that's a huge, huge improvement. She has changed, she has single-handedly changed the landscape of McGill. I know she um, brought about Black History Month. Like and so many other things. I yeah. mean, she's just been a powerhouse. It's it's been amazing. Um and so that is definitely a, a hugely positive change that I've seen. The Shanice Adrian is speaking of is Shanice Yard, Senior Advisor, Anti-Racism and Equity. Um, but almost like the pendulum swinging, there's the sense that she has also motivated the university to try and claw back the power that she's gaining. And when I say that, I look at things, for example, like the difficulties we are having in, um, in, in mobilizing the, the big equity committee, as an example. So there's a, a product in the works now to change the format so that the equity chairs no longer get to participate in the actual equity committee. Um, so the equity committee will be held by the chair the appointees from the various uh, units and only one or two equity subcommittee chairs are, would, will be allowed to attend the actual meetings. So like there's always a sense that as we try to step forward, the university claws back. You can think of things like the James McGill statue being installed with a celebration that was held in full period costume with no acknowledgement of just how vile something like that truly is, how offensive something like that is. Um, so I think what I see in terms of positive change is the students are more mobilized and more vocal. I love seeing that. There's, there's a sense that students are recognizing the power they have, which I find absolutely gorgeous. Um, and I think that people are recognizing that they can bring change through that movement, through the students being willing to champion ideas and, and, and um, bring forward causes. And I think that's important. Um, I think there, there are more and more staff members who are willing to take risks, to vocalize, to verbalize problems that they see. And I think that's really important. Um, so those things are hugely positive. Uh, definitely, obviously with, with, the last 18 months and what's happened since George Floyd, things are moving. Um, I'm, I'm a little nervous, I'm a little worried, but things are moving. I'm a lot nervous and I'm very worried, but things are moving. Um, having the creation of the, of the caucus, the creation of the Black um, Alumni Association, these are hugely positive things, but they're large, having Black grad, Black grad is a fantastic accomplishment. Um, 
even the little micro incremental change we made to uh, um, course evaluations, where at least there's a mechanism to try to recognize how discrimination is impacting uh, tenure and promotion for, for teaching staff, also really, really beneficial. Um, where I, I have concerns is there's an unwillingness to recognize the ways in which the institution is foundationally flawed, the things that need to change at its core to create real equity. Um, yeah. Um, it was the reaction we got when we first tried to launch Black Grad. When, we, when I met with a university advancement on, uh, on fundraising for the first Black Grad, in the meeting I had, there was first sort of confusion as to why I thought we needed to have this at all. And one of the reasons there was confusion was the person I met with said, do we even have you know, enough black students to make this worthwhile? Like, and I thought, I don't know if you understand how problematic that question is on either end that you don't know how many black students we have is a problem, that you think there's a number that is too low to be worthy of celebration. And regardless of the number, if we had a lot, it would be worthy of celebration. And if we have a small number, it's worthy of celebration because there's a problem we need to address. But for them, it was like, why would we do this thing? What is the purpose? Yeah. When they tried to cut Black History Month out of, out of the bicentennial was another, you know, in this year of all years, you would think that in the year where, you know, anti-Blackness is so prominent, we wouldn't actually have to make a case for why even just the optics, I don't care what your actual reason is, just the optics of attempting to cut Black History Month out of the bicentennial was just not okay, yet we had to fight them. Adrian, more than many, embraces with defiance some of the labels bestowed on Black people, especially women, labels such as aggressive and difficult. I wanted to put that on a name tag. I've really wanted to put on my, my hello, my name is difficult and aggressive. But, you know, this is where I wear the sort of the ang angry Black woman mantle proudly. I'm, I'm happy to be the uncomfortable presence at that table. I have no problem doing that and not allowing things to move forward. I'll be obstructionist if I have to be to get things done. Um, I did it as a subcommittee chair when they left really important things off the agenda because it made people uncomfortable to talk about them, I would just commandeer the meeting. Um, <laughs> you, you just, I, I'm not good at letting them get away with nonsense, so. Where Beryl and Ron largely created community off campus, some of the changes that Adrian mentioned have allowed for Black students to feel welcome in more spaces. Although there is no dedicated space for the Black Students Association yet, there are events which create moments of, let's call it space-making and senses of ownership. I asked Brittany to describe some of these spaces. Um, Thompson House uh, has been such a like pillar of my law degree. So Thompson House is a, it is like specifically for graduate students, um, you know, an, a house that was, that was, I know, donated by um, a McGill alum, I believe. Um, and it's a place where, I mean, they have a restaurant, an amazing restaurant that I think is, it's subsidized by student fees. So everything is like delicious and also cheap. Uh, it can be an event space. I've gone to many a party uh, in that space, um, space where people will, um, I think that they do events for like weddings and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's kind of like a, it's a, a student hub for PGSS students or postgraduate um, society students. But as 
law students, we got, um, even though we were technically undergraduates, we had it on our fees. So we got to partake, which felt very special. Um, and we used, we used that, that space to our advantage, definitely. Uh, a couple of my friends made a joke that our grad gift to, to McGill Law was going to be a crosswalk between the, like, the faculty of McGill Law and Thompson House. Um, maybe it'll be, you know, something that I leave in a bequest or something from, for years from now. Brittany also mentions the Legal Information Clinic, which is a pro bono service that McGill offers to the general public. The like Legal Information Clinic, which has moved around quite a bit. Uh, so when I started there, it was in the um, the Shatner Building, in the you know in the SMU Building, um, and that was a space. I mean, because yeah, like I was you know with uh, six of my colleagues and we spent a whole year working together, but that was definitely a space that I felt really safe and really, and able to like, yeah, I'd be that, you know, whoever I was on that day. Um, and then the next question is, could you walk me through a really happy, joyful experience that you had at, at you know, on campus? I think it would be, it was um, coffee house that, the Black Law Student Association was hosting, and I want to say it was in my third year. Um, yeah, because in my fourth year, a bunch of people had graduated, and so that made me sad. But in my third year, like all of my closest friends were there, and like not only other Black students, but like students from across the board. I got um, a bunch of food from like my favorite. Caribbean restaurant in La Salle. Um, she gave us a great deal. Uh, Caribbean Paradise, if you ever want to go and try it. Um, and so we had a bunch of foods from, you know, the places that I'm from, but also, you know, we had other people bring in foods as well from the places that they're from. So we had, you know, from the Caribbean, Africa, things like that. Um, and so we got to like share food with, um, with our peers who had like never experienced these things, you know, like, you know, white people calling Jamaican patties spiced meat pastries. Um, so it was definitely different <laughs> for them, you know, um, and just like amazing music. Um, we had uh, a killer DJ and this was both in second year and third year, uh, a killer DJ and just like, uh, like four hours of celebrating like our blackness, being able to take up space that like, you know, we like, do feel good in, but like, being able to be, uh, at least for that time being, be in that majority. Um, I think in the, you know, in the years that I was in law school, there was a lot of really difficult things that were happening in black communities across the world. So being able to just experience like, and experience and see like that black joy. Um, there's a, you know, one of the pictures I was talking about is a picture of me with like a tin full of, of um, Polari balls, which are like Trinidadian, are these like little like dough spiced balls they're delicious and I have a tray and I think like my head is thrown back and I'm like either singing or yelling I couldn't remember um but I, that would like very much embodied that space where I just felt like super like free just like vibing on on that like connecting with other people like me but also connecting um those not like me to like the like spaces and places that I'm from and that my colleagues are from. Um, that, yeah, that was like, just like such a special and fun um, and fun time. Many would argue that 2020 was a watershed moment for a larger understanding of black history and white privilege. And so institutions like universities are faced with the opportunity to make important changes we have heard about a certain kind of progress from our guests. And we've also heard them describe what feels like regression or roadblocks. Going forward, how do we retain black students and staff? And how do we make campus a safe space for everyone to thrive? Yeah, I mean, yeah, what a, what a question. Um, it's interesting that it's always put on people of color to figure it out. I was like, no, 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 I told you what the problem was. I cannot do this by myself. I was like, there is a system that's working here that needs to be dismantled and I don't have all the tools. So, um, but I think, I mean, above all else, there needs to be like a, a commitment to listen. Um, 
to like, you know, racialize people across the board. It doesn't matter if they have a PhD after their name or whether they like came to one, you know, class and audited or whatever, like those experiences are all valid. And so it's really important to be able to um, get that wide range of, of opinions. And I think, you know, in terms of the like action plan to address specifically around anti-black racism, um, I think uh, a good work was done to be able to get that 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 um, fastness of of opinions but yeah listening for sure and there just needs to be on top of listening a commitment to like unlearn um and to kind of enter a process um where there are no expectations of like how things are supposed to go or what the you know end result is going to be obviously like you want to um, you know, if you're in admin or whatever, want to create a space, want to create a school, um, want to create like you know, a, a life for the campus that is um, inclusive across the board and it's constantly committed to inclusion. But there can't be a like, well, we're going to have X and we're going to have Y, um, especially coming from, you know, the people at the top. There needs to be that listening um, and that commitment to just continue to do the work. Um, it's really easy to say like, hey, well, we're going to commit to hiring X amount of professors and letting in X amount of racialized students. But like, if you don't change the spaces that they're in, they're not going to stay or at the very least, they're not going to have a great time. Um, and so, yeah, that just that commitment to say like, we're going to do this work and we're going to continue to do this work. We're going to, you know, admit when you were wrong. And it's not like, I think there's like a, a misconception that like all people all people um, want people who are like pushing um, or championing you know equity and equality all we want is for people to you know it, you know say like okay we did this wrong or whatever and and be able to point the finger and be like oh look no you did this wrong no like there's a reason why we're in these spaces we want to stay in these spaces but we also want to create a better space than when we left it um, and so it's not about saying like, well, you need to do better and just finger whacking. It's about like, yes, you need to do better. And um, we were saying that because we want this space, we want this space to be better for people like us who are coming through the door. Um, and so, yeah, they're just, you know, it, yeah, in terms of like, you know, what Miguel can do, um, it is it is that listening and just like being willing to try different things and being willing to like feel uncomfortable um, and to be able to like get new results because you're not going to get new results using the same kinds of tactics. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, the, the work is starting, the work is being is being done and there just needs to be a continue like there is no end goal when you're working towards equity and equality. Like it is a, it is a journey um, without a destination, um, but it means you're learning along the way. And that like is not, that is incredibly, um, incredibly valuable. You know, regularly people who've been through the subcommittee with me, who've worked with me on various things, ask me, why do you stay? Why do you stay, Adrian? Why do you stay? I was going to ask you that, but I know you've been asked that a lot. <laughs> Why do you stay? I stay for two reasons. Reason number one is, as long as we're a society that's going to value things like having a degree from this place, it matters to me that the people who come here don't leave here damaged. It, it bothers me that so many people who come through our doors leave harmed by their experience. And if I can help them to navigate this space and, and, and survive this place and somehow leave not broken, I, I feel a responsibility to do that because it's not their fault that the world somehow thinks having a degree from McGill means more than having a degree from some other place, but the world does. It's just, unfortunately, that's the way it is. And I at least have a measure of insulation 
from the damage this place can do. And if I can sort of cast that net over a few extra people, I'm happy to do it. The other reason I stay is if we abandon it completely, then in some respects they win. There's an, they, they get to once again claim that we're not good enough, that we're not strong enough, we're not smart enough, we're not capable enough. And it's not true. It's just not true. Um, so, I mean, I stay mostly because I care about people and I care about, I care about people a lot. I care about people a lot. It's funny because I often say I don't like people, which is also true, but I care about people a lot. <laughs> um, and I think, I think we have to do better. And if I can help us do better, that matters to me. As always, look to our show notes for additional material, such as timelines, photos, links to archival material, and more. Many thanks to Beryl Rapier, Bradley Rapier, Professor Emeritus Glenn Piggott, Adrian Piggott, Ron Williams, and Brittany Williams. Thank you to Professor Natalie Cook, director of this project at McGill Library's Roar Team, and to Jacqueline Sundberg, associate producer. Our title song, Happy Sandbox, was composed by Mativ and sourced from freesound.org. All composers are listed in our show notes. I'm Sheetha Lodia, producer for this episode. Thanks for listening. <laughs>